Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is a continuation of our foot and ankle lecture series. In this lecture, we will focus on tendon issues surrounding the foot and ankle. The tendinopathy lectures will be divided into two parts. This section will address anterior tibialis tendonitis, as well as issues surrounding the perineal tendons and Achilles tendonitis. The second part will address flexor hallucis longus tendonitis, as well as posterior tibialis tendonitis and posterior tibialis tendon insufficiency. We will use an anatomic approach to organize our thoughts. We'll start anterior, move circumferentially around the ankle, working our way laterally, then posterior, and finally medial, discussing the structures and their associated pathologies. As always, I will try to be comprehensive, including information applicable during clinical practice, but brief enough to touch on the key testable material found on common qualification exams. So before we begin our trip around the ankle, let's begin with the incredibly common and incredibly annoying disease process on the bottom of the foot. What disease would you consider if you have a patient that works eight-hour shifts as a waitress, then presents to your office hours with a new onset of heel pain that is worse in the morning, then remits slightly throughout her shift, only to flare up again after being on her feet all day? It bothers her in both of her feet in the exact same location, and her heel is very tender to palpation, especially on the medial side of the calcaneus. Radiographs are negative. What's on the top of your differential? Plantar fasciitis. Plantar fasciitis is caused from an inflammation of the fascia that supports the arch of the foot and originates on the medial tuberosity of the calcaneus. It commonly occurs from repetitive overuse found in runners or individuals who spend most of the day on their feet. People that are obese and those with tight heel cords are also at an increased risk. Radiographs are typically negative, however, sometimes they may show a bone spur. It is important to stress to the patient that it is not the heel spur causing the symptoms, but instead it is an inflammation of the fascia. An MRI or bone scan can be ordered in an athlete to rule out a stress fracture of the calcaneus. So how do we treat plantar fasciitis? First line treatment includes anti-inflammatories, splinting, and stretching exercises that focus specifically on Achilles and plantar fascia stretches. Cortisone injections should not be used as a first line treatment as they can lead to plantar fascia rupture. However, they may be utilized in refractory cases. If the patient fails conservative treatment, they may undergo a plantar fascia release. However, this is only performed after a long period of conservative treatment. During the release of the plantar fascia, approximately one to two-thirds of the medial aspect of the fascia may be released. For the most part, when it comes to plantar fascia, be able to recognize the diagnosis and the necessity of Achilles and plantar fascia-specific stretching as part of the treatment algorithm. All right, now let's start our journey around the ankle and discuss some of the common tendon issues. Let's start off with anterior tibialis tendon rupture. The anterior tibialis is responsible for 80% of ankle dorsiflexion. What supplies the remaining 20%? The remaining 20% of ankle dorsiflexion is supplied by the extensor hallucis longus and extensor digitorum longus. Rupture of the anterior tibialis tendon is associated with several familiar risk factors when it comes to developing tendinopathies, including diabetes, inflammatory arthritis, fluoroquinolone usage, and localized steroid injections. Patients with an anterior tibialis tendon rupture will present with anterior ankle pain and may report a history of a pop or snapping sensation followed by ankle swelling. On exam, they may have weakness with ankle dorsiflexion. However, remember that the EHL and EDL can be recruited to dorsiflex the ankle, so do not be fooled if the patient retains the ability to dorsiflex. In chronic injuries, they may have a painless mass at the anteromedial ankle, 
which represents the torn tendon edge. The loss of the anterior tibialis dorsiflexion power may lead to a high steppage gait to facilitate foot clearance on the swing-through phase of gait, and possibly a foot slap on heel strike as there is no eccentric contraction of the anterior tibialis. Radiographs should be obtained, however they will typically be normal, and MRI is useful to help confirm your diagnosis. When a patient comes in with a high steppage gait and a foot slap, your differential diagnosis should include an L4 radiculopathy as well as a perineal nerve compression syndrome, so it's important to take a look and rule those out. So now that we've diagnosed our patient with anterior tibialis tendon rupture, how will they be treated? Elderly, low-demand patients will be treated with an ankle foot orthoses. In the setting of a partial rupture, during the acute period, patients can be treated with a short leg walking cast. Most patients will require operative repair. Depending on the acuity of the injury, this will either be done with a direct repair or an allograft tissue reconstruction. Injuries less than six weeks old are considered acute and can be treated with direct primary repair. In more chronic injuries, in other words, those greater than six weeks old, these patients may require an allograft reconstruction of the anterior tibialis tendon. Overall, patients treated with surgical reconstruction should expect good results. However, they may have some residual weakness in ankle dorsiflexion. All right, let's move laterally now, and the next structures we will discuss are the perineal tendons. Perineal tendon disorders range from tendonitis and tearing to instability manifested by subluxation and dislocation. So first, let's discuss the anatomy of the perineal tendons. The tendons run down a common sheath within the retromalleolar sulcus. The depth of the sulcus is increased by a fibrocartilaginous rim, which is about 5 millimeters deep. The tendons are restrained in the sulcus by the superior perineal retinaculum that originates on the posterior lateral aspect of the fibula and inserts on the perineal tubercle of the calcaneus. The perineal tubercle is also the area in which the sheath divides and the tendons begin to travel in their own paths with the brevis inserting into the base of the fifth metatarsal and the longest traveling around the cuboid and inserting onto the plantar aspect of the first metatarsal. The perineus brevis is the primary everter of the foot. The tendinous component begins approximately 2 to 4 centimeters above the tip of the fibula. It inserts on the base of the fifth metatarsal and lies anterior and medial to the perineus longus at the level of the ankle joint. So remember, on MRI cuts, the brevis is against the bone. The perineus longus is a plantar flexor of the ankle. The tendon may contain an os perineum as it wraps around the cuboid on its way to inserting on the plantar aspect of the base of the first metatarsal. The perineus longus and brevis are both innervated by the S1 nerve root and the superficial perineal nerve. So how does the superior perineal retinaculum get disrupted? Injuries to the superior perineal retinaculum commonly occur after the foot is in a dorsiflexed position and quickly rolls into an inverted position. This leads to a rapid contraction of the perineal tendons in an attempt to stabilize the ankle. This rapid contraction can cause the tendons to disrupt or tear apart the superior perineal retinaculum. Patients will present with a sense of a pop on the lateral side of the ankle, followed by pain, swelling, and tenderness. Chronically, they may complain of a clicking or snapping with ambulation or dorsiflexion. You may be able to reproduce the subluxation or dislocation with resisted ankle eversion. Initially, your workup should begin with plain radiographs. Radiographs may show an avulsion fracture off the posterior lateral aspect of the fibula, also known as a rim fracture. It is important to assess for any hind foot varus, as this must be addressed at the time of surgery if a superior perineal retinacular reconstruction is going to be performed. An MRI can help to evaluate for damage to the retinaculum as well as any intratendinous tears. 
Tendon tears tend to occur in longitudinal fashion rather than transverse fashion. Ultrasound can also be useful to evaluate for dynamic instability of the tendons. All right, so how do we treat patients with injuries to the superior perineal retinaculum or the perineal tendons? Acute injuries in which the tendons are stable in a reduced position within the retromaliolar sulcus should be treated with a short leg cast or a walking boot with protected weight bearing followed by physical therapy. Some surgeons advocate for a short leg cast with a foot in a plantar flex and inverted position for a period of six weeks if attempting to treat the superior perineal retinaculum disruption conservatively. Operative indications include high-level athletes, the presence of longitudinal tears within the tendons, and chronic or recurrent instability including subluxation or dislocation. Untreated instability can lead to chronic lateral-sided ankle pain in about 40% of patients. If the patient meets any of the aforementioned criteria, an acute repair of the tendon retinaculum can also be performed. To increase the stability of the repair, the depth of the retromalleolar groove is also increased. Isolated tears of the tendon have also been known to occur, with tears of the brevis being more common than the longest. If a longitudinal tear is noted within the perineus brevis tendon, it must also be addressed at the time of surgery. If the tear is simple and non-degenerative, involving less than 50% of the tendon, then a repair and tubularization procedure can be performed. If, however, it is a complex degenerative tear involving greater than 50% of the tendon, then a tenodesis is in order. The degenerative component of the tendon is debrided, and the proximal and distal stumps are tenodesed to the perineus longus. All right. For perineal tendon injuries, remember that brevis is near the bone and longus goes the long way around. Remember the mechanism of injury is dorsiflexion and inversion, resulting in a rapid muscle contraction and retinacular disruption, as well as possibly a rim fracture. Remember that isolated longitudinal tears of less than 50% should be repaired, while complex degenerative tears involving greater than 50% of the tendon should undergo debridement and tenodesis. And finally, the operative procedure of choice is retinacular repair followed by a retromalleolar groove deepening. All right, so we started anterior with the anterior tibialis tendon and worked our way laterally discussing the perineal tendons. Let's continue our journey around the back of the ankle now discussing Achilles tendonitis and tendon ruptures. Achilles tendonitis can be broken out into three separate camps depending on the specific anatomic location of the pathologic process and pain generation. The three we will discuss are standard Achilles tendonitis, insertional Achilles tendonitis, and retrocalcaneal bursitis. So now let's dive a bit deeper into all three of these diagnoses, starting off with standard Achilles tendonitis. All three of these diagnoses can be identified according to the location in which they occur, and Achilles tendonitis is no exception. Achilles tendonitis tends to occur approximately 2 to 6 centimeters proximal to the insertion site. It is within this area that a vascular watershed is thought to occur, which may predispose the tendon fibers to anaerobic degeneration with repetitive microtrauma. Achilles tendonitis can be subclassified according to the exact anatomic structures involved, either Achilles tendinosis or Achilles peritendinitis. However, these processes frequently occur concurrently. Achilles tendinosis manifests as tendon degeneration and thickening in the area of the vascular watershed, while Achilles peritendinitis is a painful inflammation of the tendon sheath itself. Patients with Achilles tendinitis frequently present with pain and swelling. Again, this is generally localized to the region about 2 to 6 centimeters proximal to the insertion. The pain can be reproduced with dorsiflexion of the foot and active plantar flexion. 
This is typically a clinical diagnosis and further imaging studies are not generally warranted. However, if an MRI isn't obtained, it may show intrasubstance degeneration and tendon thickening. So how do we treat our patients with Achilles tendonitis? First line treatment focuses on rest, activity modification, and eccentric training of the gastrocnemius complex. Remember that fact, eccentric exercises for tendinopathies. Eccentric training, which is muscle contraction while the muscle lengthens, is also the best for building muscle strength and is the muscle action during which many myotendinous ruptures occur. Shoe modification with heel lifts may also be a useful adjuvant. In severe refractory cases, a trial of immobilization with a boot or cast may be attempted to calm the inflammation. Overall, non-operative management is able to treat about 90% of cases successfully. Of note, though, steroid injections should not be performed as they may cause an increase in the risk of Achilles tendon rupture. If the patient has failed a long trial of conservative therapy, there are several different operative modalities at our disposal. In an attempt to increase blood flow within the degenerated segment, a longitudinal percutaneous tenotomy can be performed. More commonly, the patient will undergo an open excision of the degenerated tendon with tubularization of the remaining tendon component. Depending on the amount of tendon excised, an FHL transfer into the repair may also be performed to augment the tendon structure. Typically, this is done when greater than 50% of the tendon has been excised. Now, what if the pain and swelling were more distal and located directly at the insertion of the tendon on the calcaneal tuberosity? Now, we're looking at insertional Achilles tendonitis. This presents with pain, swelling, and tenderness over the posterior heel that may be quite dramatic. Patients will have pain and difficulty with shoe wear. At-risk patients tend to be older and have inflexible, tight heel cords. Radiographs should be obtained to identify any intratendinous calcifications or reactive bone formation at the insertion site. How do we treat patients with insertional Achilles tendonitis? First-line management is the same as previously described, with rest, eccentric exercises, and targeted footwear modifications. If non-operative modalities fail, then the patients may require an operative excision of the degenerated tendon and resection of the retrocalcaneal bursa in any bony prominence. If greater than 50% of the tendon needs to be debrided, then a repair will need to be augmented with an FHL, FDL, or peroneus brevis tendon transfer. And lastly, what if the pain is localized just anterior to the Achilles tendon, usually a couple of centimeters proximal to the insertion site? In this area, we would be thinking more along the lines of a retrocalcaneal bursitis. This is an inflammation of the bursa which lies between the tendon itself and the calcaneal tuberosity. This commonly occurs in young patients and has been associated with a Haglund's deformity. So what is a Haglund's deformity? This is an enlargement of the posterior tuberosity of the calcaneus that is easily identified on lateral radiographs of the foot. These patients will have pain with dorsiflexion of the foot and may have some swelling on either side of the tendon as the bursa becomes inflamed and prominent on both the medial and lateral sides. Nearly all cases of retrocalcaneal bursitis respond well to the non-operative modalities previously described. Very rarely, retrocalcaneal bursectomy and anhagland deformity excision may be required for refractory cases. For Achilles tendonitis, remember that the most commonly affected zone lies within a vascular watershed area. Its development has been associated with tight heel cords and it can be effectively treated with conservative modalities with particular emphasis placed on eccentric strengthening and stretching exercises. If operative management is required, then any degenerated tendon will be resected and if it comprises greater than 50% of the overall tendon width, then a tendon transfer may be required to augment the repair. Most commonly, this is the FHL tendon that is transferred. This makes a great segue into our next tendinopathy. FHL tendonitis, which we will pick up with next time when we discuss part two of our foot and ankle tendinopathy lecture. 
Part 2 will address flexor calicus longus tendonitis, posterior tibialis tendonitis, and posterior tibial tendon insufficiency. As always, please check back in both lectures for any updates and modifications. Thanks for listening.